Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Folks, if you'd like a copy of my best-selling first book, Tales of a First-Round Nothing, head on over to ecwpress.com. If you'd like a copy of my second book, Tales with TR, Fights, Film, and Folklore, head on over to www.flankerpress.com. If you'd like either copy personalized, just add a note. Thanks for listening to my podcast, and happy reading. You're listening to the Hockey Podcast Network. New shows every day. Find us at thehockeypodcastnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. Hello. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another edition of Tales with TR. I'm your host, Terry Ryan. Glad to be with you again here today for me on this Tuesday morning. And thanks, Darren Langdon, last week. It was a great conversation. Was, you know what? That was a bit overdue. I should have had Langer on earlier, but... Times couldn't always add up, and um, it was more me than him. People sent me messages. Oh, Langer should have come on earlier. Yeah, well, it was kind of my fault. Considering that Langer's from Newfoundland, we go back a long way. Had some great battles in senior hockey. Come, cut from the same cloth, so to speak. Um, you know, we have a lot of mutual friends. I probably could have had Langer on a bit earlier. Uh, and a lot of people ask, uh, well, today I'm, I'm going to answer some questions, so I might as well do it right off the hop. A lot of people ask, because I dropped that I might have Jeff Merrick on, uh, Jason Strudwick, Dawson Mercer. Like, I might. I'm going to ask these people, but I, I don't like doing it during the season. Uh, those NHL guys, first of all, they have to do enough, right? Like, I've just been there and not even I've been in been there meaning I've I've played on teams and I've seen guys 
junior or the minor, even in Montreal, you know, coming in first round pick, cameras often in your face. It's all good. You're going to get interviewed a lot. You know, a few years there, it was definitely the case. And, you know, when I'm up there and I'm looking at guys that, like literally playing in the NHL with a lot on their mind, million-dollar contracts. I don't know, Vincent Dumfus, Pierre Turgeon, Mark Recchi, Shane Corson. You know, guys that I looked up to that were regulars that not only had to do it all on the ice, but they had to get, you know, they they were very much encouraged to be media-friendly afterwards for, for the better of everybody. You know, when you play on the Montreal Canadiens especially, it's not just about you. It's about your team, the 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 team, it's always about who you're representing, but I don't know. I always felt a little magnified in Montreal, I think for good reason. <clears throat> um, but not everybody's always available, right? Like they, it happened a lot. I remember Saku Koivu, you know, and just think about it. That guy had cancer. It was a f- couple years after I'd played with him, but I just remember him in the room. I wasn't his best friend or anything, but we were of the same like young generation of guys coming up. So, we often ate together and bounced ideas off each other early on. Um, I could tell Saku was going to be a captain really the day that I met him. But I, let's just say, you know, my first camp, definitely my second, and seeing the – because this guy was a rookie too, but really well-spoken. And I, and I remember just going out of his way not only to talk to all the fans, but he was always available for the media. And I don't just mean like – TSN, Sportsnet, CBC, whatever, ESPN. I mean, you know, there would be people there doing, they could be in town watching a Habs game, doing a report for the Flin Flon Journal or something. Now, that kind of thing. There's media availability, and then there's like going the extra mile. And a lot of guys did that, but I saw that it stressed them out a lot. I mean, you're playing on the Habs. You're playing in the NHL generally, but if you're playing on the Habs, you're getting quite a bit of uh, attention and requests. You're getting a lot of requests and not only for media or anything, you know, can I have your stick? Can I have, you know, an autograph? And it's, it never really gets old because I mean, they're the ones paying the bills. They're the, they're, that's who, for the most part, each and each and every one of us hockey players were at some point. It does get old when someone approaches you with 300 cards and they say, don't personalize it, just write Terry Ryan. Then you know that they're going to go sell them. Now, joke's on you when it came to my card. But, you know, to go back to it, guys like Dawson Mercer or, uh, you know, Alex Newhook, say, from Newfoundland. I had Newhook on in the summer a couple of years ago. And it's nice, but I just, I really respect their boundaries. If I know how it is and I, you know, my career fizzled, theirs is, in, in the case of Mercer and Newhook, really just picking up steam now. You know, two or three years in, Alex has a, uh, I mentioned them because of the Newfoundlanders, uh, but there are more Clark Bishops out there. Same thing. Clark's getting up. He gets up for a few games every year. Uh you know, real hard worker, great two-way player. I don't want to have to interview him during the year, you know? A, there's something that you might say that someone hears that you get ripped about on the ice. I don't know, but it's more than anything. It's time. Mm. Now, chicklets can do that, of course, because I consider them 
as big or bigger than most of those big media outlets. I do, especially when it comes to the hockey community. When I was in Pittsburgh and I saw Biz deal with the fans and the media and the players, and he's literally up in section fucking 200, whatever it was, with a mic talking to Sidney Crosby on the bench. I mean, you, that's a unique situation. Uh, Chicklets are innovative. They're changing the game. I'm going to talk about a movie now in a little bit that I watched uh, a movie series this past weekend and uh, that changed the game, right? I love the Beatles. I love Nirvana. They changed the game. Uh, William Shakespeare changed the game. It's a long time ago. But, uh, you know, Bobby Orr, Wayne Gretzky, but I think even Wayne Gretzky changed the game, of course, with, you know, his play behind the net and, and a lot of his mesmerizing hockey IQ. But think about Bobby Orr. I mean, coming in and leading the scoring as a defenseman. Right? That's pretty wild. Now look at the defenseman before him, like these legends that you talk about. You know, uh, my grandfather would talk about Doug Harvey, uh, you know, legendary Hall of Famer for the Montreal Canadiens, and nothing to take away from Doug Harvey because by all accounts, he was unfucking believable Everybody that played against him, with him, nothing but great things to say. But then Bobby Orr came along and just blew all of it out of the water. Anything that any defenseman had done before him which were a lot of accomplishments, I'm sure. Doug Harvey, um, not only him, I'm going to name some names now. Uh, the 1950s. So, Tim Horton. Look at that. I just brought these up. And then, uh, Tim Horton. So, Doug Harvey led the 1950s, 672 games played, 59 goals, 301 assists, 360 points. For 808 penalty minutes. Of 36, and 808 penalty minutes. Bill Gadsby, remember that name? Yeah. My dad talks about all these guys as well. So I'm kind of unaware which names I'm going to mention that are actually popular because in my household, they're popular. My grandfather watched big time and he died when I was 13 years old. I talk about him a lot. He was on the HMS Bulldog, um, which cracked the. Uh, Captured the Enigma machine, which ended up cracking the codes in World War II. It was majorly important. The movie U-571 is based on it. Well, my grandfather, Bill Norris, was on that, <clears throat> on the HMH Bulldog, and lost his arm, actually, his right arm, and he was right-handed. Anyway, a little bit of information on my grandfather. I often like to say that because, you know, unless someone brings it up, you're forgotten, right? And those are big accomplishments. And I'm proud of my grandfather. And I hung out with him and his friends. And he used to go up. They, they started the Mount Pearl Legion, which is for war vets. And I used to go up and, you know, the boys would be playing cards, say, right? And they'd be telling stories about the war. I really learned how to be a teammate more through that than my own father back then. My dad co was coaching the Junior Blades uh, here in Mount Pearl junior team that ended up winning the Atlantic championship. They didn't lose a game in second year coaching, but I would go up there and like bring my skates. And when they would get off the ice, go on for my own ice time. And I would weasel an extra five or six hours of ice time a week because my dad coached the team after games, even they'd get off and the place would be clearing out 
and I'd go on, and Fonce, Tony Fonsevalo, the legend that he is, would let me on the ice. So I got a lot of extra ice time and everything, but, you know, I didn't really know anything about my dad's career. There was no internet, right? I mean, I, I knew he played pro, but I had nothing to go by. It's not like he influenced me as far as being a teammate or my shot or anything like that. And it turns out that, you know, my dad was a small kind of speed demon kind of player. I was, I mean, I shot left, right? He was a center. I ended up being a wing. I'm a lot bigger. My, my stride isn't close to as good. My dad was real, real fast. Um, he was a scorer in a sense that he had so many chances, whereas I was, you know, I take pride in my shot. Like if you, I shot the puck into the net a lot. <laughs> dad i mean i tipped and everything but my dad would like deeks and uh you know real quick stuff like batting in rebounds because he was so fast he'd get there first uh but he according to him and players that he played with you know i, I mean I'm, he wasn't scared he was decent on the wall but people were almost he played with guys to get him the puck whereas i was one of the guys to get you the puck we were different in a lot of ways i didn't even know what to go by I don't really remember watching him play. I was like three, came back, and he played a bit of senior hockey. But he gave that up before I really formed any decent memories. So I would uh, go up and get ice time. He helped me that way. But when it came to my knowledge of the game and I guess how to be a teammate, because all my pop's buddies that went to war with him, when they would sit around and they would talk about sports or, or the war or anything, you had this real sense of camaraderie, right? And I was an only child, so I absorbed all of that shit. When I went away, I took more of that with me when it came to being a team, right? Like, you're my brother. What They used to call each other brothers, right? Like, I mean, think of the things that they saw in World War fucking two together. So, but outside of all that, I just saw how they treated each other, right? I didn't know any of that from my dad. I mean, it was... Dad wouldn't even come to my games a lot. People, I mean, seniors supported me, especially my second year Pee Wee when I really took off. But a lot of people would like beak me. He didn't like that. And he, he saw that there was pressure being his son. And uh, I just remember it being a bit of a negative experience for him to come see me play. So anytime I'd sit dead now, I'm not saying he wasn't involved. If I sit down, I want to go practice. He'd drive me wherever. He knew he was aware that I, when I started coming into my own, which was, I guess was, it was 12, 11, 12, 13. He, he started to realize that there was something special going on. So he'd never turn me down if I asked for ice time or or if I asked him a question, of course, he'd answer it. But he was always preoccupied, right? Dad was listening to tunes, doing his own thing. He was available. But my grandfather would come and, like, say, hey, we're going up to here. We're going up to, like I said, he lost his right arm. and he, So we would go to the fish farm a lot. Or he'd take me fishing. It had to be the fish farm. That was easy. There was one in Mount Pearl. But things like that, like I would spend time with my grandfather and his friends. Um, Pop, like I said, learned to drive with just his left arm. Uh, he built lots of things when he only had that left arm. And that was fascinating to me. And for some reason, I had the feeling that time was running out, and it was. Right, He had like a triple bypass when I was like eight. He smoked all the time and finally gave that up, and then he had to chew in all the time. I mean, I can imagine what it was like. You know, these are habits probably formed, probably you told me, you know, during the war, and I can totally see all that. You know, he ate bacon every fucking day for breakfast. You could tell, you know, he didn't really listen to the doctors. 
love pop, but I did. I really, really did. It's probably the only person that I really felt. It might have been subconscious, but I know I felt that he wasn't going to be with us a long time. Um, but two or three times during the night, I remember like I remember watching one game with him, Habs, uh, Billy, I think. My my grandfather's house was right next to my parents' house. He built my parents' house in the fifties, and then built one next door for my aunt Mary that passed away in the early two thousands. Uh, but anyway. And I, you know, more than once, I remember the ambulance having to come, like this big thing coming in, and like he just had a heart attack right there. I believe once I was the one to call nine one one. I think my aunt Mary was there, and freaking out, and I was freaking out, and I knew that there was, you know, I was probably eight, nine. Getting off track, buddy. I'm telling stories. I guess that's what you want. You want to hear stories. Uh, so, anyway, my grandfather was big. And they would talk about all these guys, right? And then there was the Bobby Orr conversation, and like it just the whole room would change the mood. Like, I mean, in a good way. They were like, "Oh my God, no one's ever going to be like that again." And Gretzky was just coming in then, right? If I was, say, seven, eight, nine, I remember the memories go back to when I was three. But I started registering them as and being able to understand what they were talking about when I was seven, eight, nine, ten years old. So it was all early '80s. So Gretzky was Gretzky. But he, he hadn't had his final package of a career to look back at yet. He was doing it. So the, the conversation, just much like we have today, is it McDavid or Gretzky? Uh, it would be, is it Gretzky or Orr, right? And Lemieux came in, of course. And the, the whole thing was playing out right in front of me as these, like, you know, to me it was Lemieux, Gretzky, Orr, like, these guys were immaculate. Unfortunately, I didn't see or, but I could just tell what everybody was saying. But to get back to it, right? So Doug Harvey, Bill Gatsby, Alan Stanley, Marcel Pronovo. There, I heard that one. Uh, Tim Horton, look, 504 games played, right? One of the biggest scorers of his time, 175 points. Geez, Harvey was way out in front of everybody by like 160 points. <clears throat> so he was unreal, obviously. Let's see now, Doug Harvey. Just to name some more D. Hold on, uh, Fern Flamen, Pierre Palat. Remember that name? Bill Quackenbush, Harry Howell. Howell. Mm, sorry, Harry Howell. Um. So these guys are all up to that point. The best defenseman, I, I suppose, of all time. I mean, hockey's really just getting Hockey goes back, of course, in the early 1900s. What, the NHL around 100 years old now? A little more? Um, okay, then. Sorry, I'm browsing. J.C. Tremblay, Pat Stapleton, Jacques LaPierre. These guys are all great. Okay? But they didn't come close to a point of game ever. Now you get Bobby Orr. I'm kind of doing this on the fly. I apologize. Bobby or here we go. Let's see, Bobby Orr's geez, hockey DB usually comes up first. His stats, right? So he starts blowing away the field. So Orr comes in. No one had ever had hundred points. He gets 102, 133, 125, two of those years, at least two, wins the NHL scoring. 
he gets the Calder Trophy as Rookie of the Year. Then the next year, the next two years, and he'd go on to get five or six, or at least six, Norris Trophies. The Art Ross, the leading scorer of the league in 69-70 as a defenseman. Then he does it again in 74-75. And the other years, he's anywhere from second to sixth, or he just missed time, or he would have been. I mean, or changed the game. We all talk about, you know, it's McDavid, and McDavid plays in Edmonton and is doing things that are haven't been seen since Wayne Gretzky, so it's easy to make that comparison. But when you're talking best of all time, Bobby Orr really, I don't say it enough, but he has to be really front and center in that conversation. Now, how did I get talking about this? I'm not sure. I know we started by talking about Darren Langdon. <clears throat> of course, I digress so much. I'm all over the place. I'll tell you, though, I didn't ask Langer. But, sorry, I keep wanting to sneeze. I'm allergic to, I'm, well, I'm allergic to cats, and I have two, first of all, in the small house. But uh, today, my allergies are really acting up. The season changed a little bit, and uh, it's just my eyes are, I'm going to scratch them out of my head. And I've got two doses of fucking allergy pills in me, too. Doesn't matter. Just want to scratch the eyes right out of my fucking head. Feels great while you're doing it. It's like eating a Big Mac. Feels fucking unreal when you're doing it. Like an eye orgasm. But when you're done, it gives you a headache. Fucking burns your eyes out. And I want to sneeze every fucking five minutes. Anyway. Who fucking who? It could be a lot worse. But Langer. So a couple things. So I did get a few because people had heard that I fought Langer in senior hockey, which I did do twice. One of them is on YouTube. Check it out. Um, and I did, but I didn't really expect to. So Langer, I even remember one of the games we were talking about how you can go a whole game and not get one shift in the NHL, right? It doesn't even count for a game played. I remember having one of those against the Rangers and Langer was laughing. And then the next season, which would have been, I guess, that was 97, 98. And then 98, 99, I actually did get a chance to play against him. Wayne Gretzky was playing his last year and uh, we played the Rangers. And Todd Harvey came up to me on the ice and, and he said, hey, from Newfoundland, hey, he said, my relatives. I, I thought he said his parents, but Langer said it must have been his parents his in-laws anyway said something like that like right on the ice Habs Rangers uh and I was mesmerized because Gretzky was out there and I was the only game that I'd ever played against Wayne Gretzky and it was funny because Mark Recchi is normally a, a right winger he shoots left but I remember that he played on the right a lot I guess he played left too but it, in my experience when I played with him and I did quite a bit he would play on the right side but in this particular game, I can't remember. We must have had a fucking injury or something, but he was playing center. I don't remember seeing Rex, at least in Montreal, play center much. But he was playing it that day. And um, anyway, all right, he was at least taking some face-offs. I don't know if he was experimenting. I don't know because I don't remember that happening much. But I remember it was also hockey card day, and it was hard to get. A couple of my hockey cards, you'll notice, like are in warm-up, right, because – you just didn't know if I'd get out on the ice. 
And, uh, and again, I don't say that with any negativity. I was young. But, um, I mean, you know, it's better warm up in the NHL than fucking play every second shift in the AHL the way I looked at it at the time. And, uh, and I love being up there anyway. I loved warming up. So, <clears throat> but that happened. We had a, and, 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 and I knew that I might not ever play against Gretzky. And I also knew it was hockey card night. So Rex and so did Rex. So he kept getting kicked out of the face off and letting me come in and take it. So it'd be me versus Gretzky. No one ever did get a picture of it, but I had a great fight and that's on YouTube. Me and Todd Harvey, one of the best. I was so psyched. I remember while it was happening, just pumped because I knew it was a big stakes game. In that, it was two original six and Gretzky was playing. I mean, it was just a regular, normal game. But uh, nothing's normal when you're playing Wayne Gretzky. But anyway, I remember Langer joking about it in warm-up. And, and I remember, you know, after the game, Remember Langer said, like, you couldn't have too many beers? But we we, we had some beers sometime in the room because our team was owned, owned by Molson's. I don't remember it all the time, the Habs room, even back then. People think that it was like drinking and smoking. No, maybe that was 60s and 70s. Certainly wasn't our era. And But so, the odd time, yeah, the odd time, you could get a dozen. And, but you, and, and again, Molson had, so they were all, there were places. It just wasn't directly in the room, but. We did get around that sometimes. And I remember Langer coming over. He knew, you know, guys know each other. You're going to fight. You're going to get into this or that. But I remember him coming over after. I got a picture with Wayne Gretzky. I'll actually, uh, I'll actually post that soon. But uh, it was, uh, it was magical night. My buddy Curtis Baggs, who was a huge Gretzky fan. I remember, uh, I, I actually flew him up and, uh, I'm not saying he needed the money or anything. And Curtis got me back a thousand times over after that. But I just remember going, you know, this could be the only game I ever play against Wayne Gretzky. And they, they told me the day before. So I had like 24 hours notice. Curtis was going to Acadia. Boom. I said, hop on a fucking plane, man. Come on up. And Jeremy Charles, my buddy, the chef, who I'll have on here at some point soon. Uh, Jeremy was in town with Sam Roberts, the, the musician. So those were my two good friends. My two free tickets to most Habs games. And I had two free tickets to every game during my contract, even when I was in the minors. Thank you, Mike Barnett. Thank you, IMG, my, uh, my Tom Laidlaw, my my agents, agency. And anyway, so, but this game, Sam couldn't come. It was Jeremy, myself, and it was Jeremy and Curtis, actually, two guys from Mount Pearl in the stands to watch me come out and play against Wayne Gretzky. I got in that great fight. Then after the game, Langer came over with Todd, and Wayne was there. Wayne was aware of who Wayne was. He's humble. He reminds me of Paul McCartney and the Beatles. Like, you know, Paul will always, you know, give credit where credit is due and everything, but he never loses sight of the fact that he is Paul McCartney. And, you know, I did kind of change the game here. Wayne Gretzky's like that in, in, in that he came over. He was so humble. And if you watch him in interviews, he always gave other people the credit. But when I say he was aware of who he was, he came over and I used to go around with a little Kodak uh, camera, disposable camera. Before the days of the fucking cell phone, um, I was aware that I was creating some great memories and I was in a unique position. And guys used to give me shit. And it's funny. Now they all do it, right? Now they all get a camera on them. But I used to carry it around in my suit pocket, man. I swear to God. It, especially, not every day of my life, but...
But a lot of days in Montreal, certainly game days, I knew that, uh, you know, the day we went to Planet Hollywood and stuff, I got pictures posted. Well, those pictures are all coming from my... Co- Any picture that you see on my Instagram, which quite a few from back then, that's me with a with a uh, disposable camera. I swear to fuck, man. I, I realized I was living a unique life. So anyway, Gretzky came over. He saw me with the camera. And he came over and said, hey, do you want a picture? That's it. In other, in other words, I'm Wayne Gretzky. I know that I might retire. So, I mean, he was all, I think everybody knew that was his last year. You know, you might only get this chance once. And uh, fucking awesome that he did that. And so we got a picture, myself, him, Jeremy, and Curtis. And it's a nice little snippet in time. I never did play uh, against Wayne again. I never did play against Langer again or Todd. And, uh, you know, my NHL games after that point, you can count on one hand. So I'm glad that it happened, man. It was a great time. But anyway, that's how I knew Langer. Like, I looked up to him. Langer was... Langer was, uh, you know, a legend in my mind. He'd, It was his fourth or fifth year in the National Hockey League. Like I said, we didn't have anybody in the 80s. John Slaney came through and was trying to make it. Langer had made it. Langer was in the NHL. As an enforcer or not, I don't give a fuck. He was in the NHL. And... You know, from Newfoundland, that was a huge thing. He broke down barriers. And uh, for the longest time at the most NHL games until Clarier broke it. But Langer has uh, the, the mo- the had the most NHL games for a long time as a, as a Newfoundlander. And uh, anyway, so that was 99-2000. Now in 04-05, I'm done. Right? I hurt my ankle in 01. In Dallas camp. I knew I knew the writing was on the wall. I shot it with cortisone. You look at the last teams I played on, Boise, Cincinnati, Orlando, and the minors, because I love those cities and I wanted a chance to play there, but I knew I I knew that I couldn't go much longer. I would shoot it with cortisone. It would feel great. And as the cortisone wore off, I mean I nearly needed crutches, I swear to God. I talked about cortisone has cortisone, how it's a great masking agent, but it doesn't really heal you. At least whatever the fuck I was taking didn't, but it really masked the pain. So, you know, you're putting the wear and tear on an injury that's there. You just don't feel it. So I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I was in Cincinnati. I knew it. Boise, I thought I might be able to get around the injury. But then, you know, I went, I could just tell when I, even when I would come back in the summer, but I couldn't get out of the way of those open ice hits. And it took a lot away from my game. I wasn't a superior skater. I wasn't a good enough skater to be able to have that fucking attribute wounded, you know, like fuck anything else. If, if I hurt my wrist and I lost a bit of my shot, at least I could run around and hit and go in front of the net and tip and pass. And I think I could have gotten around that or, you know, maybe a shoulder injury that people put off for a few years before getting surgery. I could have milked a few games out of it, more games, but it was my fucking ankle. And it just, it, it wasn't a bruise kind of pain. When I extended my foot, a lot of people don't know what a high ankle sprain is, or they just think it's a sprain, like like getting a shot off the foot is a sprain. But no, it wasn't that at all. It was like I my I would extend my foot, and when it got to a certain point in hockey, you have to push off, right? They teach you to have a long stride. My dad was a small guy, but a good skater with a long stride. Well, when mine got long, and I had to rely on that, because um, I do have good leg strength, right? So with, I could 
get my feet going and I'd be fast. Agility I had to work on, which went out the door with my ankle sprain. But what would happen is I'd push to a certain point and then the sh- it was a shooting pain and it'd shoot up my leg from my ankle. And it was the left ankle on my left side, the outside ankle, like up about a quarter of the way to my knee, maybe a little bit more up, up maybe to my shin on the, on the left side, shin, like depth kind of thing. So it, it, it would like just, it would like a nerve, it would shoot the pain. So I, I just couldn't, it wasn't even an option. It's not like play through the pain, son. Like I couldn't, it, it was, you know, it gets to a certain point and your body just retracts because it's a nerve kind of feeling shooting pains. That's what happened, man. So I knew the writing was on the wall. So I came back, oh, 203 was a fucking depressing year for me. And, uh, but we ended up winning. It was bittersweet. We won it in Orlando. I remember that. Them going, like, you want to go home from Cincinnati? And my buddy, Zach O'Brien, or Zach Boyer, was in Orlando. And I went down there to finish the year. I pumped it with so much fucking meds and cortisone that I didn't feel it. We won, but I knew my career was over as far as professionally. So <clears throat> I came back, man. I was playing senior hockey for the Cornerbrook Royals. 0304 went by, I think, and nothing. Put on a ton of fucking weight, too, man. I was depressed. And, um, you know, but I could still play hockey anyway. Fucking Langer. I did end up losing the weight on a reality show in 05, 06. But in this 04, 05 year, I still was... I mean, uh, you know, what am I? 190, 200 pounds normally. I don't really go over 200 or under 190. I was probably 220, 225 at least, maybe even 230. So I could have been in a little better, better shape, but I was strong. Meaning I wasn't expecting to fight Darren Langdon, but it was a lockout year. He was in New Jersey. And anyway, he, uh, fuck, we went into Deer Lake. It's Cornerbrook Deer Lake. So I was playing in Cornerbrook, probably a half hour away from Deer Lake. We had big time rivalry and uh, senior hockey, I know, but it was the imports that just started up again it's cyclical in newfoundland that western league had allowed like three or four imports a team and we had uh, a line with myself todd gillingham who just passed away a couple months ago and darren colburn so one of the all-time leading scorers in the east coast league we brought him up last week with langer so it was me gilly and colburn and they called us the pro line and gilly and pro was had a lot of penalty minutes but he wasn't langer tough and we had some locals rocky bromley rob french and i knew they were fairly tough for locals but Langer was just coming from the NHL. Well, he was still in the NHL. It was a lockout. And it's Darren Langan. He's one of the toughest ever. And I knew that the way he fought and everything, that I had the best chance, which wasn't much of a chance. It was, I would probably lose the least, is the way I looked at it. I could at least stand up and throw some punches. But to be honest, I didn't think of it much. I didn't expect Langer to play like dirty, to be honest. And the fucking puck dropped. And no one really knew what to expect. I thought Langer would just play... I really didn't think he'd mix it up. And he went at the goalie immediately, Jeff Murphy. Ran him into the fucking net. Place going mad. And next shift, I didn't know what to do, man. I went out. And I asked him to fight. And I, again, I'm looking up to him. I guess what time? Oh, three, oh, four. So I'm probably like mid-20s, right? Langer's early 30s, mid-30s. And uh, fucking... He said no at first, and uh, 
Then I went to pick up my gloves. He didn't sucker me. I just, he said no. So I dropped my gloves and I went to pick him up and he kind of shook me, gave me a chance to fucking drop him again. He dropped his, I guess he just rethought the situation. And we went, man. And we fucking went. And he was being Darren Langdon. I was just standing in. So I was getting the odd punch. I mean, look at 99% of his fights on YouTube. It was like that. Like I was in there. For me, I'm happy that I'm not knocked out with the first punch, right? It's Darren Langdon. And I kind of at that point had, I do, like he said, I, I do fight wide open. So he could get some shots at me, but it wasn't really, really wide open. Like I wasn't being a fool with Darren Langdon. And I'd known, I, I had an idea how to kind of fight his fight from looking at him. I used to really, really, I'm not kidding. Like you could get the fights on, there was no YouTube, but there was VHS, man. And I had them all recorded. Um, and I, I I wasn't one to sit there and study power plays or fights much, but I, he was the best technical fighter in the league. I'm telling you, he was the best. I'm not saying he was the toughest, but technical fighter, you could make an argument he was the best of the whole era. You could make whatever argument you want, and every tough guy would tell you the same fucking thing. Darren Langdon was A, underrated, and B, technically fucking unbelievable, superior to most. You might have a fucking bigger upper body or bigger fucking knockout punch, but Darren Langdon was hard to beat. Ask fucking Probert and Domi and all of them. He fought all of them. And I knew that. And I didn't. I would go in. I mean, I fought Tidomi three times, yes, but fuck, man. Like, I was outmatched. I did it. And, you know, even the middle fight that it, they called it a draw on the Toronto Sun. I mean, Domi was hitting me way harder than I was hitting him. <laughs> like, you know, when I fought Ryan Vandenbush and these guys, it was to pick up for my teammates and to show that I was, wasn't scared. And, you know, like I've often said, when a guy like me fights an absolute heavyweight and even just stands in there, it get a bit of a momentum for my team. I don't have to win. I just have to stand in. So I was kind of coming at it from that angle, but Langer was like beating these people. So he's a, a way, a notch way above me, maybe three notches, but for the Cornerbrook Royals and their fans that night, I'm what we got. They're waiting for me or Gilly or French or somebody to fight this guy. He just ran the goalie. I know, and Gilly knows, and Colburn knows that we don't really have anybody to do it. No offense against none of these guys. And they're not ready. Rob French, one of the toughest motherfuckers from the West Coast, but he'd been playing senior hockey. Uh, you know, you're not ready when you're not having to go out and fight every fucking night. Like I said, I'm a middleweight, but I was getting in fucking 20 a year in pro for a joke. So at least I had that experience. I guess I I was experienced at learning how to not lose too bad. So anyway, that happened. And uh, the second time, and we, you know, I stood up. That's all I can really say. I stood up. I know that the guys on our team that knew were, like, pumped for me. I remember Colburn going, fuck it. Like, he was pumped. I don't know if I've ever seen Darren Colburn that happy. After the game and we got on the bus, he was fucking some happy, man. Fucking rights, he said. We answered the bell. We had, like everybody was really pumped, but I don't know if the fans realized. I mean, they watched me lose a fight. I, I guess they were happy someone fought him, but you know, in their minds, I was just as tough. So, which wasn't the case in real life. So, it was an a wild, awkward experience. That was 0405. and then after Christmas, we played them again, and he would. He ended up going back to New Jersey playing 14 games it was a lockout year i think they played maybe the second half of the season but before same fucking shit man 
he went and uh, something happened. He hit our guy. Langer could be dirty, but it was just the places that he went would always lend itself to he looked like a fucking total scumbag because he was go to the front of the net and like try to tip one in. He was so big, a D-man had come back at him and he'd fucking cross-check in the face if he had to. Langer was like bird dog like that. He didn't give a fuck. And which made him scary and gave him a lot of room out there. But I remember Langer just finishing hits and people thinking he was being real dirty. But he was never really dirty with us or with me. Um, but whatever happened is that, you know, they had a list of fucking tough guys and so did we. The guys I mentioned were real tough. I just mean, you know, they hadn't fought many pro fights. Um, but... Uh, Real tough players. Even our, we had small guys. Cyril Walsh would like go over into their end and warm up and start shit. It was real, real. Every game was chaos. But anyway, this the second one was on YouTube, I believe. And it was towards the end of the period or end of the game, I remember. And uh, Langer was beaking somebody. I got in there and you can see, right? You can see he's hitting me with some fucking haymakers and i'm just kind of standing in there i tried to get a few punches in and i did for me that was a win it was darren fucking langdon and uh that was that we didn't talk about it much we lost game seven that year to deer lake and they went on to win the uh herder memorial championship as we spoke about which outside of newfoundland you wouldn't know what i'm talking about but if you're in newfoundland you know it's a big time coveted trophy so langer and i were pretty fierce opponents as well and then a few years later when i won the herder he played uh on the Western Royals, we nearly got into it again. And uh, I was playing on the conception-based CBs. Anyway, just a little history of me and Langer. But we, now we play these alumni games together. I would always see Langer in the summer too, right? Like watching baseball or something. A lot of my buddies played for Deer Lake. We would always have beers. We just got into those two fights. And uh, basically, I can look back and say, I fucking fought Darren Langer. But... Uh, you got the better of me in both of those. NBA fans, it's time to bring the hoops action to the palm of your hand with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. This week, new customers can bet $5 and win $200 in free bets instantly. Plus, for a limited time, all new and existing customers can get a no-sweat same-game parlay every day. Go to the DraftKings Sportsbook app today, opt-in, and place a same-game parlay on any NBA game. And if it doesn't hit, you'll get a free bet back. So, what are you waiting for? Download the app now and sign up with the code THPN. New customers can bet $5 on the NBA and get $200 in free bets instantly. Again, that's code THPN, as in the Hockey Podcast Network, only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. Void in Ohio. See show notes for details. Anyway, it was great to have Langer on and reminisce a little bit. And a lot of you wanted to know why I didn't ask him that question. Well, maybe I should have. Now, a lot of you also wanted to know about uh, Aaron Asham. And uh, I do have some crazy Asham stories. Just to give you a snippet. I mean, Asham, we were... I'm not going to tell you the whole story because you can go back. I think it's episodes... Like, real early in Tales with TR, like in the 10s or 20s, 30s. Ash has been back a couple of times. A lot of you listening now, 90% of my audience is just kicked in after Shorzy, so you don't really know. A lot of you 
about my history or, you know, most of this stuff I talk about in my first book, Tales of a First Round Nothing, shameless plug, thank you. Um, but I do, I talk about it all. And Aaron Asham wrote the foreword to that first book. Like he's one of my best friends in the world. So Ash, we were actually sitting out once in Montreal and we went to, made a bad decision and went to Super Sex, which is a strip club, just waiting for the game. We did our workout and everything. And uh, the boys were playing. I didn't like to be a distraction, be, to be honest, be around the rink. We were there to see them before the game. It was playoffs. We were black aces. But uh, once that happened, we we left. But now we could have made a smarter decision than to go to Super Sex Strip Club. Uh, Jose Theodore came, Matt Higgins, myself, and uh, I think it was Alan Nazardine. But again, we weren't doing anything really wrong. I mean, strip clubs are legal to go to, and we'd done our workout, but it was kind of, I don't know, the optics weren't great. And especially not after I... Uh, I watched it with my own eyes. Aaron Asham punched out a Hell's Angel right in the fucking bar. And that led to a crazy sequence of events. But uh, you can hear all about it in my first interview with Aaron Asham. I've had him on here a couple of times. But I don't... Those who knew that story are like, why the fuck didn't you ask him? Well, I didn't because we already talked about it. If you want to go back and listen, it's the same story. It's just told a year and a half or two years ago. And uh, I also watched him. He, he, we had a house party in Red Deer and he... The guy was chirping and Ash fucking challenged him and the guy pulled out a knife and put it right to his throat and Ash fucking laughed at him. And there's more to that story too. But you can hear both and a whole lot more if you go back and listen to the archives. Listen to myself and Asham and all of our early exploits. So anyway, that's that. And I've been rambling. God, I had no plan again. I wanted to talk about the only thing I knew I was going to talk about Oddly enough, usually I recommend music. Well, this weekend I went back and I watched the Spaghetti Westerns, the Dollars Trilogy, Sergio Leone. Fistful of dollars, a few dollars more, and the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm thinking most of you have heard of the good, the bad, and the ugly. At least those words, okay? It's a classic movie, a three-hour epic, Clint Eastwood. Um, Lee Van Cleef Eli Wallach Sergio Leone is the director and Ennio Morricone Morcioni does the score which is legendary it's the first time that a score in a movie was almost like an extra character I shouldn't say in a movie because that's the good, the bad, the ugly. The good, the bad, and the ugly is the third of the trilogy, though, right? The first one is called Fistful of Dollars. I highly recommend these. These are great watches. They hold up today, and it's history, and you're watching history. If you haven't seen these, I'm talking immediately. Fistful of Dollars is the first one. It's 1964. Low budget. They did them. They're called spaghetti westerns because they did them in Italy and Spain. It's, it's, it's made out to be the American Southwest in the movies, but it's not the American Southwest. Clint Eastwood only made 15 grand per movie, or at least for the first one, Fistful of Dollars, I know that. And he was a relative unknown. He was, I believe, starting to have a role on Rawhide, which was a American TV show based on, it was a Western, but I, he wasn't, household name yet 
And uh, Sergio Leone was an up-and-coming director, Italian director, with a lot of big-time new ideas, but he just didn't have a big budget. So Fistful of Dollars is the first one, which I recommend because it's an hour and a half. The second one for a few dollars more is almost two and a half, and the third one, the epic blockbuster, the good, the bad, and the ugly, uh, is is almost three hours long. But they're epic. They're the man, Clint Eastwood is the man with no name, right? He doesn't even have a name, and he comes into town and in, in, in say fit. Each one of them is about making money, obviously, right? This full of dollars, a few dollars more, and the good, the bad, and the ugly is an extension of that. But you know, in the first one, he comes into town, and there's the Rojas's and the the bank. Oh God. Fuck, it's too fab. The Baxters. The Baxters and the Rojases. And it's a small town, and they're at odds with each other. A constant kind of civil war going on between the two families of sorts. And Eastwood, who's the man with no name, rides into town and uh, devises a plan to uh, try at least to make some money off both families. It's a very dangerous place to be, and he says, I'm going to play the middle. The Baxter's here, the Rojas is here, and I'm going to be in the middle. And anyway, it, it's unpredictable. It's a great story. And you've got to... So that's the first one. That's 1964, or a few dollars more is 1965. A little bit bigger of a budget. You can start to see Leone's evolution. And then... 67 would be the good, the bad, and the ugly, which was a game changer. Now, those of you that like uh, Quentin Tarantino, that like Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Django Unchained, Kill Bill, uh, Jackie Brown, you can see, so that's Quentin Tarantino. I'm sure most of you must know that, but those who don't. And he was heavily influenced by these. His favorite movies are these three that I'm mentioning. And when you're watching them, you got to realize the time that they came out and what they represented. So if nothing else, the score, Ennio Morricone. So the good, the bad, and the ugly, the famous, I don't want to butcher it, but right, that sound that you hear, and it's all throughout. Now it's part of the American pop culture. You'll hear it on Family Guy, The Simpsons often. Uh, in 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 many westerns, and but that that is unique to the good, the bad, and the ugly. It just and then the first couple are similar. The the, the score, the the instruments that are being used, uh, the relevance within the movie of the sounds that are being created by Ennio Morricone are are legendary, and they're a huge game changer, huge. So you got to realize when they came out and what they're being compared. I mean, what's some great movies from the 50s and 60s? Casablanca, uh, Gone with the Wind, Rebel Without a Cause. They're great movies. But you can tell that this is, you know, this is new when it comes to the score, the cinematography, especially my favorites in Fistful of or a few dollars more. Um, the acting, the, the shots, Sergio Leone with the, the shots of the close-ups on the eyes, uh, 
especially in the end scenes of for a few dollars more in the good, the bad, and the ugly. They're epic. They're game-changing. The way he uses lighting and, and, and the full face and sometimes just the eyes, right? And the camera pans over to Eastwood and then, you know, whoever the gunfight is with or against at the time. I don't want to give too much away, but it's different ways of shooting. Now, if you just watch them and you don't really think about the time that they came out, you won't appreciate it as much. But they're fucking great, especially now the HD versions. I mean, they'll never, I, I don't know, you'd be an idiot to redo them because they're classic and they're so good. And the acting is phenomenal. It's not just Eastwood, it's Eli Wallach, Wallach and it's uh, Lee Van Cleef, who were big, but really kind of used that as a platform um, to some degree, at least to an American audience. Um, Oh, wow, if you keep forgetting this name, G-I-A-N, Gian Maria Val Valante. Okay. But anyway, he's in a couple of these, plays a bad guy, plays a Mexican. Um, and uh, like I said, it's the, the, these in the movie, they're supposed to be taking place in the American Southwest. Back at the time of around the Civil War and, you know, fighting for territory and shit like that so it's it, the good the bad and the ugly is just an epic one of the best maybe it's one of my favorite movies ever but so are all three and a lot of people maybe if you if you start with the good the bad and the ugly which you shouldn't anyway because it's a third of a trilogy but you can watch them out of order it's just that Check out the first one, because I know a lot of people go, it's so much time, and those old movies suck so bad. And Now, watch the fistful of dollars. Watch them in order. And the first one is a short, an hour and a half and change. And if you, if you like that, you'll definitely like the other two. But uh, I can't say enough about them. And when it comes to music, that's what we're the, the score for each movie. Ennio Morricone, okay? Now, Sergio Leone, a lot of you have heard of Once Upon a Time in the West. He'd end up doing that after the trilogy, which now you can really see him come. You know, you can see Leone evolve because he didn't have the money at first and he, to support his creativity. But uh, those are my favorite three. But a lot of you have heard of at least Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that came out a few years ago, or Quentin Tarantino's latest well a lot of that's based on once a time upon a time in the west right a lot of those ideas a lot of the shots a lot of the close-ups in kill bill you see when uma thurman walks up in her cowboy boots and like the, that shot of just the boots like walking into a saloon that's leone right so a lot of what tarantino does isn't really a copy it's an homage to the leone dollars trilogy so listen, I know there's a lot of there's not enough time in a day to do a lot of what our schedules require. But I highly recommend watching a fistful of dollars, a few dollars more and the good, the bad and the ugly. Take a week and 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 watch one a week. Uh I watched all three this weekend and it was uh even though I know what's coming, I love the movies. It had been a while since I watched them, and uh, they're as magical now as they ever were, and uh, they're good for so many reasons.
Um, I want to beat a dead horse and talk about the Beatles again and again and again. But what I love about the Beatles is what I love about these, right? Like compare when you're watching to everything you know at the time. Even John Wayne. I love John Wayne. He's a legend, right? I didn't say I love him. I like him. I like John Wayne. But, you know, John Wayne, I'm sorry, to me has nothing on Eastwood. These movies are way cooler. I think superior direction. It led to Clint Eastwood doing Pale Rider and Hang Him High and fucking Unforgiven and so many other. It almost, to me, Leone's Dollars trilogy changed the whole expectation of what a Western is. If you watch a Western now and a lot of the score and a lot of the even instruments being used, a lot of the cinematography, a lot of the a lot of the shots, like, you know, from a director's point of view, it's all now, I mean, part of the genre. A lot of people do it and they don't even know, well, this is the way they do Westerns. Yeah, it's because of Leone. It's because of Morcioni and the score. Eastwood should get a lot of credit there. The way, you know, the man with no name says a lot without saying it. Not a lot of words spoken, right? The, the, the emotions are expressed through look and feel kind of thing, like a feel for the for the scene. Anyway, I think it's the three of them came out in the mid-60s, really, as the Beatles' later albums did, and, and you can see the evolution just like you can. And when I listen to uh, uh, Sgt. Pepper, to me, which is fucking change like like i said the first concept album a lot of it's the first concept album and uh you know a few years later you start to see i don't know dark side of the moon and, and albums like that that are, are, are the kinks schoolboys in disgrace you know you, album songs started to tell stories in order a concept started to take place for the whole album rather than just singles right just an album with elvis's greatest you know so it was a game changer, uh, Sergeant Pepper, to the point that now, if a concept album comes out, what's what's my favorite in in the two thousands? Probably American Idiot by Green Day. Now they know because they know the Beatles, but a lot of people listen to that wouldn't realize that you know that whole idea was born in the late sixties with Sergeant Pepper. Um, like it, it, it changed things so much that you forget to even that who started it. That's what I think about the few, or the Dollars Trilogy. Now, I've been rambling here. I smoked a joint, and I've been sipping coffee since we started, strong coffee. So I often don't know how these are going to turn out, nor do I even listen to them. I'm in my living room now. I dropped my daughter off at school before we started this. I came back. I got into my happy place. I had a list of things to talk about, which started with... Mario Lemieux, so I didn't get there. I was going to talk about uh, the impact of the traded players so far on each team. I didn't get there at all. Um, so maybe, <laughs> fuck, maybe I'll talk about it soon. But you know who we're going to have in a couple days? Brant Myers. And Brant Myers, I've had him on before as well. He's got a great book um, out there. Jesus, what's Mizey's fucking what's the name of that again? Painkiller, painkiller. Uh, fantastic fucking book. One of the toughest guys of his era. Um, really solid dude who uh, I've come to know and love. 
in uh, in my life's my evolution as a hockey player. I still consider myself a hockey player. And when I went out west, and I just heard the stories of Brad Myers, I never thought that I'd be hanging with them or having them on my podcast. And a courageous motherfucker too, man. I don't know if I've seen many people deal with addiction like he did. And uh, yeah, he came out of it. Knock on wood here, but Mizey seems to be in the happiest place I've ever seen him. So that's good. I can't wait to talk to Mizey. And we're, like I said, we already went over all his career in chronological order and everything. So I'm going to ask him some fun questions now about what he thinks of the, the, the game today. You know, big time fights that he's been in, hardest punches he's given or taken, or, you know, those things that you probably want to hear from a guy like Brent Myers. Uh, and these are on YouTube now. Follow THPN. Hockey Podcast Network, and uh, each episode, at least each one that I have with a guest, are going to be on YouTube. This one here today, I'm doing on Zoom, and I'm not even recording the video. You wouldn't want to see what I look like today. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I'm going to try that for each and every episode. So I think so far we have Sheriff McMorrow, Andrew Shaw, we have Brendan Brooks, Aaron Asham, and of course, Darren Langdon are up now on YouTube. Check them out. Check them out. I'm going to see how it goes. Most people prefer, I mean, the vast, vast, vast majority when it comes to my audience don't want anything to do with YouTube. I don't know if it's because I'm of my studio, of my appearance, or just that they like listening. I'm the same way. I could give a fuck for the YouTube part when it comes. I, I enjoy that part of podcasts that we're going back to a time that you don't have to see what you're hearing back to the good old era of detective radio shows like Johnny Dollar, and Sam Spade of the 1930s and forties where people would sit around and listen to the radio waves while creating imagery in their head about what they were hearing. That's what I love about podcasts. That's why I, um, listen to so many and when it comes to watching I got a TV for that and I'll, I'll, I'll watch accordingly shows that I'd like to see but I don't need a visual for most of the podcasts I listen to thanks a lot thanks a lot to everybody fucking out there that listens to this man because I thank my lucky stars each week I do two of these it's semi profitable you know it's part of my it's a big part of my income now and I wouldn't fucking have it if it wasn't for you people tuning in. Half the time, I don't know why. I ramble. Today, I didn't go by plan. I hope you liked what you heard. Um, but I know you're going to like Thursday when we have Brant Myers. I guarantee you that. And a lot of people are asking about my dad. We're going to have him on again soon. I promise. There's a lot going on. And uh, when these people are available, I got to jump on it. My dad is, is available whenever. Uh, and I'll have him on again soon. I might even have him on with me when we're interviewing uh, an old friend in a couple weeks, but I'll more about that soon. What I do know is that if you're in downtown St. John's and you want to go for a bite to eat, why not go to Merchant Tavern, Blue on Water, or Wedgwood Cafe? If you're going to go for a drink, right, this Friday, I'm going out for drinks. Well, why wouldn't you go to Trinity Pub, to TJ's Pub, Rob Roy Confusion, Green Sleeves, Martini Bar, Bull and Barrel. Check those places out, just like I do. And, of course, if you're going to go and work out, 
you want to train hard, change your life, your body, your mind, go to Rope Walk Lane and go no further than power conditioning. Strength and balance for the body and mind. I've hooked a few friends up there recently, and they absolutely love it. Ryan Power, Power Conditioning. Check it out. I highly recommend. And of course, Mr. Lube has two locations right now in St. John's, Torbay Road and Kenmount Road. Live, laugh, lube. Pitbull Pain Relief, pitbullpainrelief.com. Check it out. Pain sticks are a part of my life now and forever. I highly recommend. Thanks for listening. This has been 145A of Tales with TR. We're getting up there now, folks. And next, oh, two days from now, we're going to have Brant Myers, like I said, the author of Painkiller and uh, a guy who inflicted much pain on his opponents over the years, including this cat in 1993-94. But more about that in a couple of days. Thanks a lot for listening. This has been Tales with TR. Catch you guys on the rebound. Back soon.